So today I'm talking to Alvaro Leva and Anita Zhang. Alvaro is the author of the Pistum D library, and he's a production engineer at Meta. And Anita is an engineer D manager D at Meta, and I'll let her explain that further. But thank you both for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. I guess where we could start, Anita. Maybe you could explain a little bit your your title that I just gave you there. Yeah. So by default, I, I should be a software engineering manager, but when I transitioned to management, I was not ready to go public with、um, my transition. So I kind of hid it by changing the title. We have some weird systems in place that grep on like the word engineer. So I had to keep engineer in there somehow. And so I kind of pulled my friends what I should change my title to, and they're like, "Oh, you're going to support the System D team, so you should change it to like Manager D."、So、I was like, "Sounds good, Engineer D, Manager D." I didn't want to get kicked out of any workplace groups, for example, that required me to be an engineer. Oh, okay. <laughs> Or like engineering function, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And you just got to title it yourself. So as long as you got engineer in it, you're good. Yeah, pretty much. Some people have really fun titles like Chief Potato Officer and things like that. So, what groups does the、uh, the Potato Officer get to go in? Yeah, not the C level ones. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe to to start, we should explain to people who aren't familiar、uh, what System D is. So, if either of you want to want to take that one. So people who doesn't know, right? So, System D is today is your init system, right? Is the thing that manage your your process. And the best way to understand this, it is like when your computer boots, it needs to execute something, and that something is what we call bit one. And that bit one is the thing that is going to manage everything from now from there on, right?、Uh, in the most basic level, if you remember how to how does program start, how does like an idea becomes a program,、uh, you need to fork exec, right? So that means that something has to be at the top of that tree, and that is system D. Now that can be anything, right? So there was a time where that was like system five. And there was also like AppStart.、Uh, today, System D is the thing that it's shipped in most distributions. Yeah, because I I definitely remember when I first started working with Linux.、Uh, it was with CentOS six, and when I would want to run a service, I would have to go and write a Bash script and kind of have all these checks for is this thing running? Does it have permission to these things? Which users are running as, and so there was a lot of stuff that I remember having to do before System D came out.、Mm-hmm. Yes, the good old days, as we call them, <laughs> <laughs> or the bad old days. <laughs> yeah, depending on who you ask. Yeah, so, so that is super interesting because、um, during those times, like you said, like you have to write a fat script. That means that you were basically yourself, your own service manager, right? So. Th- Ideas as simple as is my program running? There was no real answer. You have to figure it out, right? So if you run a program,、uh, you maybe would create a pid file which hold the pid or the pyd of the process of the main process, right? And then something needs to check. Oh, is this file exists? Does the file exist? And does the content of this file actually match to a process? And then you grab the process. So it was all these ideas that you had to do, and then 
for you have to do it for every single software that you would deploy on your machine, right? That also makes really hard to parallelize stuff, right? Because you have no concept of dependencies. So if your computer has to boot, I, I don't know if you remember like a long time ago, like a Linux machine would take like five minutes to boot like your desktop. I remember like OpenSUSE, I can't remember, like 2008, 2007, uh, it would take like five minutes to boot. And then Ubuntu came and, and it started like right immediately. And it was because you can parallelize things, but you cannot do that if all you're running are batch scripts. I remember before the Linux distributions didn't include it. And I wonder if you have any insight into how systemd got chosen to be the thing to manage our processes and basically how we got to where we are today. I mean, we can kind of speculate a little bit. At the time when Leonard started Systemd um, with Kai Savar, I probably messed up his name there, um, they were all at Red Hat, and Red Hat manages Fedora these days. And I believe Fedora is kind of like the bleeding edge for a lot of the new software ideas. Um, and when they picked up Systemd as the default, um, eventually it started to trickle down to the rest of their distributions through RHEL and to CentOS. And at the same time, I think other distributions started to see how useful it was in terms of managing all the different processes and services. Um, I know Debian at one point had kind of a vote on like whether they should make systemd the default or like make it easy to switch between both. And then they decided to just stick with systemd because it's, I mean, the public agrees that it's like easy to use and it's more useful, it abstracts away a lot of things that they had to manually do before. Something I've been kind of curious about, so just this year at scale, uh, you ran a, a workshop teaching people how to use systemd and, and sort of what it is about. I guess when, when you get people coming to these workshops, what are they typically where are they typically coming from? Are they like system administrators or are they software developers? Like when you run these workshops, who are you looking for as your audience? To be fair, this was the first time that we actually did a workshop for this. Yeah, but we have like talked about this in, in many like conferences. Here's what happened, right? So every time that you put systemd on the title of a, of a talk, you are like baiting people into coming in, right? Because you do want to hear like some people who are still like reluctant from that war that happened like a few years ago eh, between systemd and absurd, right? Most of the people who we get are, I would say like s software engineers, eh, people who do software. And at least the question that I always get a lot, it is like, why should I care about systemd um, if I run everything on my containers, in my Docker containers, right? The other type of audience that you get, you do get system administrators, uh, but in general, those people only care about start and stopping services, don't really care about like the, like the nice other features that systemd has to offer. And then you get people who just want to start like frameworks, and I'm here for that. <laughs> in previous years, you've given conference talks and, and things like that related to systemd. And I wonder for, for both of you, where, where the, the interest came from where this is something that you feel strongly enough about that you want to give talks about it because it's like a lot of times when people give a conference talk it's about like new front end technology or some you know new shiny thing whereas system d is like it's like very valuable but it's something that i feel like a lot of people don't think about and so i'm just kind of curious where the interest came for for both of you 
I think I just like giving talks and teaching in general. So if I have work that I found really exciting or interesting, then I'd want to like tell people about it and like teach them and like show them something cool. I think system D is kind of a really good topic in that case because a lot of people want to learn more about it. Today, there's like lots of new developments going on in system D. So there's like a lot of basic stuff that you can learn, but also a lot of new advanced topics that are changing every year as well. Aside from that, there's also like more generally applicable things. Like everyone wants to know how to debug something if you're like a software engineer or developer or even a sysadmin. Um, so last year I did a debugging talk. There's a lot of overlap, I'd say. How about you, Alvaro? <laughs> For me, my interest in system D started in Back when I was working at Instagram, we needed to migrate from CentOS 6 to CentOS 7. And that was the transition where you would have like a random init system to systemd, right? So we needed to migrate all of our scripts from like shell script to whatever shell script was going to interact with systemd. And that's when I was like, I don't like this. So I also have a thing where if I find something that doesn't have a Python API for it, I go and create a Python API. So I, I created systemd like during that time. And I guess for me, the first reaction was when I was digging up systemd was like, whoa, can systemd do that? Like, is that, like really? Like, I can like manage network firewalls, right? Can I, can I stop my service from actually accessing the internet without having to deal with AP tables at the time? So that's kind of like the feeling that I wanted to show people when I, when we do these, these talks and, and these workshops, right? This is why like most of our talks uh, have live demos in them because we do want to show people like, hey, like this is real, you can use it. I don't know if this was a conscious decision on your part, but the thing about things like system D is they, they feel like more foundational things that don't change that quickly. Like if you look at front end development, for example, at, at Meta, you've got React and that ecosystem changes so often that it's like there's always this new thing you learn the way to do it and then it changes right whereas i feel like when you're in the linux user space and you're with system d like they're adding new things but the the foundations kind of stay the same i'm not sure if that sounds accurate to both of you yeah i'd say a lot of the there are a lot of stable building blocks in system d but at Meta, we also have a kernel team which is working on like new kernel features all the time. They take years possibly to adopt. But with systemd, if we're able to influence the community and like get those kernel features in earlier, then like we can start to really shape what the future of operating systems look like. So it's not it's very like not short term <laughs> uh, work that we're doing. It's a lot of long term uh, work. Yeah, that's that's interesting in that. I didn't even think about the fact that you're sitting at the, the user level with system D, but you kind of know what you want. And so if there's things that the kernel can do to support that, you're having that involvement with the open source community, make sure that you have your, your say get put in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, it goes both ways, right? So one part it is like, yeah, sure. We want features and we create them. Um, and we actually wanted to, those to be upstream because we, like, one thing that you should, you should never do is manage internal patches for, like, things like the kernel because that's rephase hell. Um, 
but you also want to be like part of the community and and and, and get the benefit of like being part of it. <laughs> and so, like one thing you mentioned er- earlier, Alvaro, is that people will sometimes ask you. I'm running my application in, in Docker containers. Why do I care about system D? So, so maybe you could explain like how you would respond to that. Yeah. Well, for more, for most people who actually run their application container, I say like, no, you probably shouldn't care, right? Like you're good where you are. But in general, like, like system D is foundational in the sense that it is the first thing that your computer boots. Your computer doesn't boot a, a Docker or a Kubernetes or, or like that. So, like, something has to run these applications. There's also, like, a lot of value is that not all applications exist in the vacuum. Like, uh, like let me give you an example. Like, if you have a web server, when people are uploading stuff to the web server, you will upload temporary things, and then you have to clean it up after a while. So you may want to take advantage of system timers or cron or, or whatever you want, right? Uh, while the classical container view is that your bit one of the container is the application that you're running, right? So you do want to have like this whole ecosystem. Not all companies can run on containers. Not everything can run in containers. So that's basically where all the things start to to get into shape. There's a lot of value in understanding how programs actually like exist, right? The thing that I told you at the beginning of how an idea becomes a program, understanding like like you hit, you are in your bash, right? And you hit LS, starful, enter, right? What happened in your machine? Understanding all those things, uh, there's a lot of value. And understanding how systemd works, it's, it, it provides uh, like that knowledge for you. So for the average engineer at Meta who is relying on your team to deploy their, their code, I guess, if that's the right term, do you think that they're ever needing to think about system D or is that kind of more like the responsibility of your team and they're just worried about like I put my thing into my container and I don't I don't worry about it. I think there's like a whole level of the stack that sh- ideally should not even care or know that we're running system D below them. I think that's say we're doing our job well cuz then the abstraction is good enough that they don't have to worry about it. But there's like a whole class of engineers below that that have to, you know, support the systems that run our on bare metal and infrastructure and make it happen. And those are the people who really care about what we're putting in system D or like what the corner cases are and things like that. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, one of the talks that was at scale was uh, Brian Cantrell. Um, he gave a talk about the forgotten operator, and he was talking about how people forget that there are actual servers behind all the things we're deploying to, right? There is a mm-hmm. person that you're racking the machines and plugging in the power, and like, even though there's all these abstractions in front, that still exists. And so it sounds like things happening at the kernel level and the Linux user space and system D, that's also true because all this infrastructure that people are using to deploy their software on, your team is the one who has to keep that running. And to keep that running, they need to understand uh, system D and, and all these foundational Linux pieces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that said, like, um, I, and maybe it's because I'm very close to, to, to the source. Um, and, and it, you know, like, like I said, like when, when all your tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, that hammer for me, a lot of the times it is like either like C groups or, or namespaces or even like system D itself, right? There is a lot of times where, um, like for instance, a few 
years ago we have no like like last year or something uh, we had an application that was very but very hard to load, right? It, it uses a lot of memory, and so we start with with a model where we would load like a like a parent process, and then child process would deal with with um, with the actual work of the thing. The classical model of a web server. Now the thing is that each of the sub process that would run would need to run uh, on a separate set of privileges, right? So it would need, really need to run as different users, and that was like very easy to do. But now we actually wanted to some process to run with a read only view of the file system, while the parent process actually doesn't have to do that, right? Uh, or we want to limit the amount of CPU that a child process would use. So like all of these things, we were able like to to swap it up. Uh, with using like systemd and and uh, and setting like like a good like a good strategy for like you create the process you create a new C group you put that into the C group you create a namespace uh, you add this process into that namespace and then you have like all this architecture and it's pre pretty free because forking it's free in general. Actually, Avro's comment reminded me of like why we even ended up building the systemd team in the first place. It's kind of like if we have all these teams trying to touch C groups on their own or like manage processes on their own, they're all going to do it a different way. And not, not all of them will be ideal <laughs> or like, to put it bluntly, I guess. We're really aiming to try and provide like a unified, really good foundational experience for the layers above us. And so systemd and the other things that go into the operating system are a step to get there. And so for someone who's not familiar with the concept of C groups or of namespaces, could you kind of give like a brief description? So namespaces are, uh, we're talking about the kernel feature where um, there are different ways to isolate uh, different resources to the process or like so that they have their own view of certain things, the network or the processes and things like that. And C groups stand for control groups. It's at Meta we only use C groups too, which is a way to organize your processes into kind of like a directory view. But processes will be grouped into different folders, shall you say? But that allows you to manage the resources between different groups of processes, which is how systemd does its services. So a, a control group will allow you to impose restrictions on how your system uses the resources, right? Uh, so with a C group, you can say only use 20% of CPU, and the, and the kernel will take care of that. Uh, while namespace, it is basically how you view the system around you. So like your mount uh, directory, like, like where does your home points to, that's, I would say, it's more on the namespace side of things. Yeah. So one is the view, the other one is the actual, the restrictions. And like Anita said, like systemd does a very clever thing. It doesn't have to, it's not the, it's not why C groups exist, but every time that you start a systemd service, systemd will create a C group for that service and will put every process in that C group. Even though all C groups would end up being the same, for instance, but uh, you can now like have a, consolidated list of what process belong to a service. So a simple question like, like what services has my Apache web server started? Let's show you how old I am, but yeah, you can answer that now because you just look at the C group. You don't look at the process tree. So it, it sounds like the, the namespacing is 
maybe more for the purposes of security, like you said, giving you a certain view of your your system, and the C groups are more for restricting resources, but also, like you said, being able to see what are all the processes that are associated um, so that you, you don't have a process that spins up other processes and then you don't know who owns those and then you don't know how to mm. shut them all down. That, that takes care of that for you. So I, I yeah. always reluctant to use the word security or privacy. I would like to use the word isolation. And yeah. then if people want to impose the, <laughs> the idea of security and privacy to those, that's fine. But it's, but it's mostly yeah. about isolation. Yeah. Namespaces are what back all the container technologies or anytime you run things in a container, it's probably using some kind of namespacing. But yeah, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Isolation versus like resource control. The, uh, as Anita just said, uh, that's what fits on containers, uh, namespaces and C group, like a big mix of those. But that doesn't mean that the only reason why those things exist are for containers. You can take advantage of those technologies without actually having to think on, of a container. Something you had mentioned a little bit earlier is is how systemd has other features and one of them was was timers and i was kind of curious cuz you said you could you want to schedule a job you can run it using cron or you can run it using systemd timers and it i feel like whenever i see people scheduling jobs they're always talking about cron but but not so much about systemd timers so i was curious if you had any thoughts on that I don't know. I feel like it's used pretty interchangeably these days. Um, like even when people say cron, they're actually running a systemd timer with the cron format for their time. So the, the advantage of the systemd timers over cron the, is, is basically two, right? The first one, it is that you get more control on the time, right? So you have monotonic and absolute times, right? Which is basically like you can say like this starts five minutes after the previous run, or you can say this start after five minutes after the boot, right? So those are two types of time. That is the first one, uh, which may be irrelevant for most people, but that's it. Uh, the other one is that you actually have advantage over the, you take full advantage of system D, right? In Chrome, you say run this process. Right. And how that process run, it's basically controlled by the process itself. Right. So if you, uh, like, if the current tab is for a user, that's good for you. But if you want to, like, nice it or make it useless CPU, that's what it is. While with systemd, you say this cron will start this service. And this service, you take full fledged advantage of all the things a service can do. From what I could tell, looking at the, the timers API, it, it felt like, it would be a lot easier to kind of see when things ran, get you know, get a log of I ran this time job and it, it failed. Um, it seemed like systemd had a lot more kind of built in to, to kind of look into that. But uh, yeah, like Anita was saying, like when you, you hear kind of cron all the time, but like you said, maybe it's maybe they're not actually using cron all the time, they're just saying cron. <laughs> Well, I would take this for cron, like the, the time, the time, uh, syntax for it. It's pretty, it's pretty easy to understand, even though really? I can never remember where, <laughs> I can never remember where weekday is, right? The, the fourth, which one is which? I, I'm with Anita. I need to look it up whenever I'm going to use it. <laughs> yeah, I use a well, cron translator when I have to <laughs> use cron format. Well, this is like, like a flags to tar, 
right? Like I never remember yeah. which, which flags to put. Um, yeah, that's we, true. We didn't talk about this. We haven't talked about system D run, but one of the advantages of the one of the advantages of using timers is that you can schedule them on demand, right? So like a cron, if you want to schedule something over time, you need to modify the cron, the cron file. Uh, and that's experiment, right? With systemd, you can have like ephemeral units. And so you can say like, just for now, go and run this process five hours from now. Like, and after that, just forget about it. Yeah, the during the workshop you mentioned system D run and I hadn't even heard of it. And after I saw that I was like, wow, this this could be really useful. <laughs> it is quite useful. One of the things you had mentioned, I, I guess you've you've been at Meta for for quite a while and you were talking about how you started with having all these scripts you were running on CentOS six and getting off of that to something more standard. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that that process. Like, what did things look like then, and and how have they they changed over the years? I would say the following thing, right? Like Anita said, like for most engineers, the day to day of things don't really change that much because this is foundational things, right? So if you have to fundamentally change the way that you run applications every couple of years, then you waste a lot of time, right? It's not the same as you say, like React, where, or, or in the old days, Angular, where Angular 1, Angular 2, Angular 3, and then it's gone, right? Like, so, so I, I would say it, like, for the average engineer, things don't change that much. Uh, for the other type of engineers, like, like us, who we, who, that we really care about, like, how things run, like, having a, an API where you can, like, Query the state of your service, like if, like asking, like is my service running with an API that returns true or false? That is actually like a volume value that you can like transfer in, in your application. Uh, that that helps a lot on, on distributed systems. A lot of like our container infrastructure that we use internally at Meta is based on a lot of these ideas and technologies. Yeah, thinking back to the CentOS six to seven migration. I wasn't on like the any operating systems team at the time, but I was working with them and I also I was on a team that had to migrate, figure out how to migrate our scripts and things over. So the one thing that did make it easy is that the OS team, uh, we deploy all our things using Chef, maybe for like Puppet and Ansible, that's our version, the open source Chef code. Um, and they wrote some really good documentation on how to migrate from Runit, which is what we were using before, to system D. So it was a very large scale effort across multiple teams to kind of make sure their stuff works, do the OS upgrade, and then get used to using system D. And so the the team who is performing this migration, that's not the product team that would be the is it production engineering? Is that is that what you call that? So, so I was at the other side of, of that of that table where I the same as Anita we were doing the migration. Mo, how most things work at Facebook is that it's a combination of the team that is responsible for the technology and the teams who uses the technology, right? So we are a company, so we 
can like move together. It's the same thing when you upgrade kernels. Most of the time, the kernel team will do the effort to upgrade the kernels. And when they hit a roadblock or something, they will call for the owner of the service and the owner of the service can help debug. Uh, for the case of CentOS 6 to CentOS 7, uh, I was the PE at Instagram. PE stands for production engineer. I was the PE at Instagram who did most of the migration of our fleet. So I, I rewrote most of the thing because I understand how our things work. And the OS team provides like the support to understanding like like when can I use some things, when can I use not other things. There was the equivalent of ChatGPT at those days, right? I would just ask them how to do stuff. They would give me recipes. So so it, it's kind of like like a mix uh, work uh, between those two teams. Uh, Anita, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you took when you were upgrading the version of System D and you found a bug. Um, like regular system D upgrades nowadays. I, I'd say it's a lot easier these days. I mean, since the at the time when we did the CentOS 6 to 7 migration, it was like our fleet was a lot more fragmented, I'd say. Nowadays, it's a lot more homogenous, which makes, which makes it easier. Yeah, in the early versions, there were some kind of obscure, like, interactions with the kernel or, like, um, it's, we we make pretty heavy use of systemd to run our container system. So uh, if we run into any corner cases, um, like pretty obscure stuff sometimes because we make pretty heavy use of the resource control properties, we usually, those end up on the GitHub tracker, <laughs> things like that. That's the side effect of hiring very smart people. They do very smart things that are very hard to understand. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting point about you saying you're using these these features, you know, of the kernel very heavily because you're you're kind of running your own infrastructure, I think even your own data centers. So you're kind of forced to go to this level, it sounds like, just because of the sheer number of services you're running and the fact that like you have to find a way to pack them all onto the same machine. It, does that does that sound right? Yeah, I'd say at at our scale, like it's more cost effective to act, own the servers and run all, everything on it ourselves versus like you know leasing from uh, AWS or something, which we've also explored in the past. But that also means we need more engineers to build and run things on our servers. Yeah, so the, the distinction between, let's say you're a, a small company or a mid-sized company and you pay AWS or, or Google to, to do your hosting for you, then you may not necessarily get exposed to a lot of the, the kernel-level problems or even the Linux user space problems because you're, you're working at a higher level and that's why you don't necessarily encounter those kinds of things. I'd say not not necessarily. I think once you get even like slightly lower in the stack where you're just like on your own server, then you will want to start really looking into like what system D is doing. How does it interact with other uh, services um, on your server? And how can you like connect these different features together? One of the things that every developer who, who works like has to worry about is log, right? Yeah. And that and that's the first time that you actually start interacting with system as a developer, right? So you have to understand, like maybe it's not just tail var log 
Foo.log, right? Maybe it's just journal CTL. And it's like, what? But yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, too, about whenever you're working with the operating system, like you're deploying onto a Linux machine, regardless of the distribution. If you're the person who's responsible for that, you you need to know this stuff, right? Otherwise, it's kind of like you're just putting stuff out there and hoping for the best, yeah. Yeah, there's also another thing that I, that I, I don't know if I've said this before, but a lot of the times you don't have to know these technologies, but knowing them will help you do your work better. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that applies to pretty much anything in, in development, right? I, I've heard often that some people will say, you take the level that you work at currently and then kind of just go down one level, right? And then so you can kind of see what's underneath that. And you don't necessarily need to keep digging because eventually if you keep digging, you're getting into, you know, machine instructions and whatnot. But yeah, maybe just one level is, is good to, to give you a better sense of what's happening. Every time that I, that, I, that somebody asks me, like, what is the difference between a PE and a SUI, uh, software engineer, production engineer, uh, typically in, in conference, uh, one of the biggest difference that I, that I say is that a PE, we tend to ask a lot of questions going, the same thing that you're saying, we try to go down the stack, right? And I always ask the following question, uh, do you know how time.sleep is implemented, right? Do you like like if you if you were to see time dot sleep on your Python program, like do you actually know what it's doing under the hood, right? Is it a while true while the time? Is it doing a signal interrupt? Is it doing a select on a file descriptor with a timeout? Like what is it doing? Would you be able to implement it? And the reason why I say this is because like when you're debugging an application, like somebody's something's using your CPU, right? And then you see that line on your code, you you can debug every single line of your code, but also there's a lot of values say like, no, time.sleep doesn't cause CPU to spike, right? Because it's implemented in a way that it would not be possible to do that. Another thing that I think might be kind of interesting to talk about is, so Meta has this Linux user space team, and I wonder, like including your role in it, but just as a whole, like, what does that actually mean day to day? Like, what are the kinds of problems people are facing that a user space team would be handling? Mm, it's kind of large because now that the team's grown out to encompass a few other things as well. But I'll focus on the Linux user space part. The team started off on the software engineering side as the systemd developer team. So our job was really to contribute to the community and both, you know, help with problems and bugs that show up in upstream um, while also bringing in new features that we think would be useful both at Meta and to like folks in the Linux community as a whole. So we still play a heavy role in systemd. We also support it uh, within the fleet. Like we roll out new releases and things like that. But we're also working on a few other projects in user space. Um, BP filter is one of them, which is uh, how can we convert like IP tables and network filtering into BPF programs. Um, on the production engineering side, they focus a lot on the community engagements. So in addition to supporting CentOS, they also handle or they like support several packages in Fedora. Debian and other distributions, really figuring out how we can 
be a better member of the open source community and make connections there and things like that. And, and what was your, your process for getting in, involved with this team? Because it sounded like maybe it either didn't exist at the start or it was really small and, and now it's really, really grown. So I was kind of the first member of like the system D team, if you call it that. Um, it spun out of containers. So my manager at the time, who's now my director, was he kind of made a call out on Workplace looking for people who'd be willing to contribute to System D. He was supporting the containers team at the time, who after the CentOS 7 migration, they realized the potential that System D could have, making their jobs a lot easier when it came to developing the container backend. And so along with that, they also needed someone to help you know, fix bugs, put in new features and things that would tie into the goals of the containers team um, and eventually now our host management team. I was the first person who reached out to him and said, hey, I want to give this a try. I was on the security team at the time and I always had dreams of going back into like operating systems development and getting better at it. So yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in this space. A few years later, I he decided, hey, we should build a team and you should like hire some people who will also do this with you and increase our investments in System D. So that's how we kind of built out the Linux user space team to encompass System D and more like operating system projects. And so when you were working on the security team before, was that on software internal to Meta or were you also involved with you know, the open source user space side as well. That was all internal at the time, which was kind of a regret because there was a lot of stuff that I would have liked to talk about externally. But I think moving to Linux user space made me realize like, oh, there's so much more potential in open source projects, even in security, which is still like very closed source from our side. And so, like, in your experience, what have been some of the big differences? I mean, definitely getting to talk about it is a big one. But, like, in terms of your day-to-day, what are the big differences between working on something internal versus something that, that's open source? I have to talk more with external folks. So we're pretty regular members of, like, the systemd, like, conclave sync that we have with the other upstream maintainers. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more like cross-company or an external open source community building that we have to do. It kind of puts into perspective like how we manage our time and also our relationships versus like internally, like everyone you work with works at Meta. We kind of have uh, some shared leadership at the top. It is a little faster to turn around um, because, you know, you can kind of just ping people on work chat. But the, all of the systems there are closed source. So there's not like this swath of people outside that you can ask about when it comes to open source things. You can't, can't look in Discord or whatever for questions about internal meta infrastructure to other people. It's got to be all in the same place, yeah. Yeah, and I'd say with like the open source projects, there's a lot of potential to tap into expertise and talent that just doesn't exist internally. 
that's what I found really valuable because people have really great ideas outside as well. Um, and we should like listen to them and figure out how to build that into their systems and also ours. And Alvaro, I don't know when you first started, was that on internal infrastructure and tooling as well? Yeah, so um, my path is different than Anita. And actually my path and Anita doesn't share <laughs> any common edges. So I, I don't work at the user space uh, or the Linux kernel or anything. I always work in teams adjacent to it. Uh, but it's always been very interesting to know these technologies, right? So I started working on Instagram, and then I did a lot of the work in containers, in migrations, uh, where, where we built PSMD, and I started like, getting to know more about the technologies. We did uh, a small pilot on using CA Sync, which is a very old tool that, like, oh, it's only for the fans. <laughs> It's still on system repository. I don't know if, that, if that's used or anything, but it was like a very cool idea of how distribute images. Uh, and in Instagram, we do very fast deployment. So we deploy, or back then, we used to deploy the source code of Instagram every seven minutes, right? So every seven minutes, every time that a developer did a commit to master, uh, we pushed that into production in less than an hour, and we did that every seven minutes. So we were like planning to to use those technologies for that. And then I moved to another team inside of Meta, which is called Cloud Foundation, where we do a lot of like cloud infrastructure, uh, like public cloud. Uh, that's the area that is very much not talked much about. But I keep like contributing to, to like this world. Uh, never really work on 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 those teams inside of Meta. So I guess it's your your team is responsible for working with the engineers who work on product to be able to take their code and, and deploy it. And it's kind of like you work in combination with the user space team or the system D team to make sure that what you're doing can be supported by them. Is that kind of an accurate description? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's definitely not an exhaustive description, but yeah, that's the, we, we, we do that. It's interesting that you, you're talking about public cloud now. So when you move to public cloud, are you using VMs kind of like you would in a data center or is it you're actually looking at the more managed services and things like that? So I'm going to take a small detour and say like something that is funny. When I got hired by Facebook, we were working at Instagram. So Instagram was just an acquisition for, for, for Meta, right? And Instagram ran on AWS. So why was on the original team who were moving stuff from AWS into the internal data centers at Meta. On the team that I work now, uh, we work to support workloads that cannot run on Meta infrastructure, either for legal reasons or for or for practical reasons, right? Because we don't have the hardware uh, capability or legal reasons because the government asks us that this cannot be on, on your data center. Or security, right? We don't want to run this this binary that we don't understand on our network. We do want to work in isolation. And the same thing that Anita was saying where their team are building like common ways of using these tools like SystemD and user space, we do the same thing but for using cloud technologies on a way that is more similar to, to Meta. So that's the detour. Now, the, to answer your actual question, uh, we do a couple of things, right? So uh, since we manage the infrastructure and then teams deploy their code, they are better suited to know how their code gets to run. 
Uh, with that said, we do have our preferred ways of how you will run stuff, and it's a combination of user containers, uh, open source containers, and and also like VMs. So it, it sounds like in this case, you're you're still using VMs even in public clouds. So the way that you do deployments, the location is different, but the actual software and the infrastructure that you're running is is similar. So there's there's a lot of difference between the two things, right? So the uniformity of hardware at Facebook or our data centers makes deploying things very simple, right? While in, in the cloud, you first you don't get that uniformity because everybody like builds their AMIs as as they want to build it. But also, like at Meta, we use one operating system. In the cloud, you are a little bit more free of what you want. And one of the reasons why you want to go to the cloud is because you can run stuff on 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 the way that that Meta will run it, right? So so. It, even though we have some things that are similar, it's not as simple like, oh, just change your deployment from like this data center to like whatever US is one thing you would run. Can, can you give an example of something where you wouldn't be able to run it on Meta's image that they would choose to go to public cloud to run a different image for? So, um, so in, in general, like if the government asks us, and this is not necessarily like like the U.S. government, right? So, and like, if the government uh, asks us, like, hey, like, you need to keep this transaction on on our territory, right? For logs, for all the reasons, for whatever, right? Like, and and we want it to be in the place, we would have to comply, and that's where we will probably use this this kind of technologies. Security is another one that is pretty good, and the other one, it is like, in its general, like like uh, like disaster recovery, right? If if Meta is down in a way where we cannot communicate with each other using Meta's technologies, right? Like, you would need to have like a bootstrap point. Is it the case where you're not able to put uh, Meta's image up into public cloud? Because you were the examples you gave was more about location, right? Where you're saying we need to host in public cloud because it needs to be in this country. But then I think you were also saying that the actual images you would use on AWS, right, would be, I don't know, maybe you'd be using Amazon Linux or maybe you'd be using a different OS entirely. And is that mainly because you're just not able to deploy the same images you have uh, in-house? So in, in, in general, uh, this is kind of like very hard to, to explain, but, but uh, if... If we would have to deploy code to a machine and that machine would, would, would be accessed by people who are not like meta employees and we have no way of getting them to sign NDAs, then we would not deploy meta code into that machine uh, because that's, sorry, no, not PI. PI is personal information. I was say uh, IP. Sorry. That's, that's the word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So if there is, so if you're in public cloud, there's certain things that, you just won't put there just because those are only allowed to run on Meta's own infrastructure. No. Earlier you were talking about Instagram was an acquisition and they were in AWS. Were were you there at the time or you joined after? No, I joined I joined after. I joined oh. to to Meta. The way that Meta does hiring, at least for my area, is that you get hired as a production engineer but you don't get assigned to a team. So you go through a process called bootcamp where you get to try different teams and figure out what things you like. 
I try a couple of different teams. Turns out that I like it to work at Instagram. And so at that time, they were already running on Facebook's internal infrastructure and they had migrated off of AWS? We were on the process of finishing that migration. So by the time you were there, yeah, basically get, getting everything out of AWS and then into Meta's internal. Yeah, and, and, and everything is, is a very hard terms to, to define. I would say like like most of all, like the bulk of things, we were putting it in, inside, like at least what we call our Django servers, like they were all just moving into internal infrastructure. This kind of touches on the, the whole bootcamp thing, but Anita, I saw that you, you interned at Facebook and then you took a position there. When you ended up taking a position, I'm kind of curious, what were the different projects you looked at or, or how did you end up settling on the one you chose? Yeah, I interned um, and I joined straight out of university. I went into boot camp similar to Alvaro and I had the chance to explore several different teams. I knew I was never going to do UI. <laughs> that was just like not my thing. Um, so I focused uh, my search on all like backend infrastructure teams. Um, obviously, security uh, was one of them because that's the team I was in interning on. Um, I also explored the kind of testing infra team. We call it Sandcastle. It runs our internal like, unit tests and things. And I also explored one of the ads infrastructure backend teams. So it was mainly just, you know, getting to know the people, um, seeing which projects appealed to me the most. Um, and then, you know, I kind of chose based on that. I, I think I've always chosen my work based on how interesting the project sounded, uh, which has worked out in my favor <laughs> as far as I could tell. How, how about you, Avaro? What were the, the different projects you looked at when you first started? So as a PE, you do have a more restricted uh, number of teams that you can that you can join. Uh, like I don't get an option to work in UI, not that I want it, but <laughs> that was not an <laughs> I, I, it's, it's so long ago. Uh, I remember I did look at um, at MySQL as a team. Uh, that was also one of the cool team. Uh, we had at that time uh, distribute uh, engine. Uh, to to run work like in, in like salary or something like that, but internally, I really like the concept of distributed like workloads. Um, uh, and I can remember, I think I did bootcamp with the messenger team. That I I ended up having like a good relationship with their TL, their tech lead, but never actually like joined that team. And I believe because she uh, had me had a, a PHP bootcamp task, and it was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> not down for the only python huh <laughs> exactly python python because it's just above sea level i mean related to that you you started the the piston d project and so i wonder if you could explain what the context behind that was like what sparked i need to make this this library so it's it's a confluence of two things. The first one it is like, again, if I see something that doesn't have a Python API for it, I feel the strong urge to create one. I have done this a couple of times, mostly internally, but also externally. That was one. And when while we were doing the migration, I, I, I honestly, I really hate text processing. So the classical thing was like, if you want to know if your application is running, you do systemctl, you chill out to systemctl status, then parse the output, find the 
fan the status colon okay and I didn't like that and I started reading about like system D uh, and I got in contact with the or I saw the like the divas implementation of system D and that was I thought it was a very interesting idea how that opened all the doors right uh, so I got a demo working like in a couple of hours and then I said like okay now how do we make this Pythonic and then I created that and I just created again just for migrating Instagram that was the idea then uh, one of the team members who worked with Anita, but also one who doesn't work with us anymore, they saw this and said like, hey, like this looks like a good thing to open source it. So it was like, sure, like I'm happy to open source it. So we open source it and then we went to All System Go, which is a very nice, interesting conference that happened in Berlin where like all the head for like user space get together. And, and I talk about it and people seems to like it. And that's the story of that. And so this was replacing, I guess, like you were saying, a lot of people were shelling out and running cat commands and things like that from their Python scripts. And this was meant to be a layer on top of that. Yes. So it, it does a couple of things. So first of all, inspecting the processes or, or like the services, getting that information out. That's one of the main usage, but also like starting or stopping or like doing all that operations that you want to do, uh, knowing the state of, of, of services. Uh, that's also another thing that people take advantage of. The other thing that people take advantage of is to modify the status of their of processes at runtime, like changing properties, like increasing or decreasing uh, the, the, the CPU threshold, because systemd provides a very nice API or interface to modify the C groups properties that otherwise you would need to kind of understand the tree structure that uh, that that in uh, proc whatever. So that's what people tend to use this mostly internally. And so it it sounds like at least on the production engineering side, you're primarily working in in Python. Is that something that's the teams before were using Python and so everybody just continues using Python or is there kind of like more structure or, or thought put into that? I would say the following thing about it. Um, like in in general, uh, there's, there's not a direction on which language you should use. It's pretty natural which language you should use. But with that said, there's not a popularity of languages inside of, of Meta. Most teams use C++, Python, and Rust, and that's it. There's Go that appears every once in a while. There, sorry, I should not talk about this, like, like, or talk like this about this. But uh, there are teams who are actually like very fan of Go, and they use it, and they contribute a lot to that space. It's just not that much used internally. I have always gravitated towards Python. That has been the language that teach me how to do real coding, and that's the language that did me a job at Meta. So. I tend to work mostly on that. Yeah. Hey, you forgot hack our uh, yeah. our web <laughs> services. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so yeah, I would say like the most used language at Meta is actually PHP. <laughs> it's just like used by, by by one particular product that, that that is the Facebook product. Yes. So our our entire uh, web interface. Uh, or web stack uses a combination of hack, which is a compiled PHP, which is better than uncompiled PHP, also known as vanilla PHP. Uh, there is a lot of like GraphQL, React, and I think that's it. 
infrastructure is largely like C++, Python, and now Rust is getting a huge following as well. Yeah, like like Rust. Rust is I I would say it is the fastest growing language inside inside of Meta. And the thing is that there is also what you call like the bootstrap problem. Um, there's like today if I want to do my Python program and I have a function that fails one every three times, I can add a decorator that is retry that retries every time that something fails for a timeout, right? And that's built in and it's there and it's used and it's documented and I can look at source code that uses this to understand how, how it works. When you start with a new language, you don't get these things. So people have to build them. So it, there's a bootstrap problem. That's also an opportunity as well, right? Like if you are the ones building sort of the foundations, then you you have an opportunity to be the ones who have the core libraries that people are are using every day. Whereas if a language has been around a while, it's kind of some of that stuff is already set, right? And you may or may not like the APIs, but that's what people use, so that's what we that's what we do. One of the last things I'd kind of like to ask, so Anita, you moved into management in just the last year or two or so, and I'm kind of curious what your experience has been. Like, was that a conscious decision where you wanted to go from engineering, uh, software engineering to management, or maybe you could talk a little bit to that? Oh, man, it hasn't even been a year yet. But I feel <laughs> okay. like so much time has passed already. <laughs> uh, no, I never had any plans to go into management. I love being an engineer. I love being in the code. But I'd say my my current manager and uh, my director, you know, who hired me into the Linux user space team, they kind of sold me a little bit <laughs> on the idea of like, hey, if you want to like keep pushing more projects, you want to build out the team that you want to see working on these things, um, you can consider going into management, taking it slow in a what we call a TLM role, which is like a tech lead manager role, where you kind of spend some time doing development and leading the team while also supporting the engineers as a manager, doing the hiring and the relationship building and things that you do in management. So that actually worked out quite well for me, despite Alvaro shaking his head at first. <laughs> I really enjoyed being able to split my time into kind of the key projects that I really want to work on, uh, while also supporting the engineers and having them build out new features in Systemd and kind of getting their own foothold in the community as well. But I'd say, like, in the past few months, it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> I I probably naively thought that I'd have a little more control over, I don't know, my destiny as a manager. And that's, like, 100% not true. <laughs> uh, you're, you are kind of at both the whims of your engineers and also the people above you. And you kind of have to strike that balance. But... Uh, my favorite part is still just being able to hide the nasty stuff away from the engineers, let them focus on their work and enjoy what engineers want to do best, which is just like coding, designing, and like, you know, doing fun open source stuff. I would say like, I need to laugh about me uh, for, uh, because like she's on the other side. But one thing that I, at least I find very cool at Meta is that managers are not seen as your boss. 
right? There's still like a teammate who just basically has a different roles. This is why like when you're an engineer, you can transition into be a manager and that's it's not considered a promotion, that's considered like a, a like a horizontal step and vice versa, you can come back, right? From a manager into, into like an engineer. Yeah, that was what I would say. And uh, I guess when you were shaking your head, I'm guessing this means you you don't want to become a manager anytime soon. So I, I never closed the door on that, but I was shaking my head to the work of a TLM, right? Uh, so the TLM, TL stands for tech lead and M stands for manager. So you're basically both, but with the time of only one. So Anita was able to pull it off. I don't think I would be able to pull off like double duty on that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I support too many people now to do the TL stuff as deeply as I used to, but I still have to find some time to code a little bit here and there. So you were talking a little bit about how things have been crazy the last few months. If if someone is making the transition into management, like what are the kinds of things that you would tell them to to look out for or to be aware that's coming? Um, you know, when I, before I transitioned, I talked to a lot of managers about like, oh, what was like, you know, the hardest part about management and they all have kind of their own horror story <laughs> about what happens to them when they transitioned or even like difficult things that happened to them during management. I'd say don't expect it to be easy. You're going to make a lot of mistakes, usually in like the interpersonal relationship side. And it's really just about learning how to learn from your mistakes, pick back up, and do better next time. I think, uh, you know, if people like books, The Making of a Manager by Julie Joe. She was a designer and also a manager at then Facebook. She's no longer here. But she has a really good book on, like, what you can expect when you transition into management. The other thing I'd say is don't go into management without having a management chain that you can really trust. I'd say that can kind of make or break your first few years as a manager, whether you'll enjoy it or not, or even like whether you'll be able to get through the hard times. Good point, yeah. I mean, I think whenever you take on anything new, right, having the support of the people above you or just around you as well is like that makes such a big difference right even like the situation can be bad but if everyone is supportive then you can you can get through it yeah that's absolutely right i think that's a good place to wrap up unless either of you have anything else that you thought we should have talked about so if people want to check out what you're working on what you're up to um how can they find you where I guess we're both on Matrix now. Uh, I'm Anita Jaw on Matrix, A-N-I-T-A-Z-H-A. We both have Twitters as well, if you just search up our names. Nope, yeah, you're on Twitter. Yeah, um, there, 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 there is an imposter with my name. It's not an imposter, it's just me. I just never log in into Twitter anymore. We both have Mastodon now as well. Oh, yeah, think, yes. <laughs> Fostodon. We're both frequently at conferences as well. What's what's coming up next? I think it's uh, DevConf CZ in the Czech Republic, and then uh, All Systems Go in September. Isn't something in Canada? Oh yeah, LFF 
LFSMMBPF is coming up. That's a that's more of a kernel conference, though. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of letters. <laughs> it's a it's a mouthful. <laughs> that's very neat that you get to to kind of go to all these different conferences and and actually get to meet the people in in person that are you know working with the same things you are and get to be in the same room. I think that's a that's a real privilege. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Anita and Alvaro, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for hosting. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's a lot of fun. <laughs>